from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 76. We're coming back from a brief hiatus. Uh, We took a month or so to gather our thoughts, stockpile some content, and regroup as we uh, organize the next collection of podcasts. And we're actually going to be kicking off a sports medicine series. So today's guest is an awesome one, and it's going to kick off this next little barrage of content that relates to sports medicine, whether that's orthopedic surgeons, researchers, uh, manual therapists, you name it. We've got some really good stuff coming up, so I'm super excited for it. Overuse injuries have emerged as one of the biggest threats to players at every level of competition. As an example, at the professional level, ulnar collateral ligament injuries at the elbow alone sideline pitchers for an average of over 17 months. That's a ton of lost development and a threat to lengthy careers. Just as concerningly though, for youth players, overuse is the predominant mechanism of injury. So what can be done? Obviously, we need to train athletes to be prepared for all the stresses the game throws at them. However, the other side of the equation, recovery, often doesn't get the attention it deserves. Healthy, recovered arms mean you can stay in the game and give your best on the field, and that's where Mark Pro comes in. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge recovery cool that provides all the benefits of active recovery, but without the extra effort, muscular fatigue, or stress to tendons and joints. Players can use Mark Pro as long as needed for exceptional recovery between training sessions or after games. We'll often send Mark Pro units back with athletes to their hotels or even have them use them on team flights. Both easy to use and portable, Mark Pro is a powerful tool that allows recovery anywhere, anytime. Use it while relaxing at home, on the road, or during tournaments. On a personal note, I was originally a naysayer when it came to Mark Pro. However, longtime Cressy Sports Performance athlete Corey Kluber turned me on to it. He adopted Mark Pro into his post-pitching recovery approach, and it was an integral part of him going out and throwing 200 innings year after year. This led me to experiment with it myself and with more of our athletes, and the feedback was consistently outstanding. Now, just a few years later, you'll see it in every major league organization as part of the routines of some of the most accomplished baseball players on the planet. If you're looking for the same results enjoyed by these athletes, visit markpro.com and use the coupon code CRESSY at checkout for an exclusive discount. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com, and use the coupon code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for an exclusive discount. Today's guest is a coach, physical therapist, author, and speaker. Along with his wife, Juliet, he is the co-founder of The Ready State, which began as Mobility Wad in 2008 and has gone on to revolutionize the field of performance therapy and self-care. He received his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree in 2007 from Samuel Merritt College in Oakland, California. His clients include professional athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB. He also works with Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record-holding Olympic lifting and power athletes, CrossFit Games medalists, ballet dancers, military personnel, and competitive age division athletes. He's the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's also co-author with Juliet of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Deskbound. His latest book, Waterman 2.0, offers water sport athletes a comprehensive guide to optimize movement and pain-free performance. His work has been featured on 60 Minutes, The View, The Joe Rogan Experience, and dozens of other podcasts, magazines, and books. On top of co-founding The Ready State, in 2005, 
He and Juliet also started San Francisco CrossFit, the 21st CrossFit affiliate in the world. They also founded Stand Up Kids Together, a nonprofit dedicated to combating kids' sedentary lifestyles by bringing standing and moving desks to low-income public schools. To date, Stand Up Kids has converted 95,000 kids from sitting to standing. As a competitive athlete, he paddled whitewater slalom canoe on the U.S. canoe and kayak teams. He led the men's whitewater rafting team to two national titles and competed in two world championships. Please welcome to the show, Kelly Sturette. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Always a pleasure. I am very excited for this. And, you know, I kind of told you this off air, but one of the reasons why I'm very excited about this first is like, I'm stuck in the baseball world all the time. So I always appreciate these opportunities to, to talk to people <laughs> that are in different worlds and, you know, bring unique uh, skill sets to the table. But what I also think I've always respected the most about you is, is like just in spite of your, your great success and all the awesome things you've done, like humility is amazing. You will learn from anybody. You will ask questions of anybody. You'll look to any industry. Um, and so I think that that's a, a really, really important thing that gets overlooked. So I, I celebrate that for you. Well, you know, uh, thank you. And uh, secondarily, I think, uh, you know, we're in the era of being a savage generalist. You have to understand that people are working to solve a set of problems that you have, but they're doing it in a different field. So if you're not looking around, really, and if, and let, let me just give full homage to all of the coaches who are working their asses off and don't have a whole lot of time to look around. You know, some, some of this is that I look to my best coaches on the planet who are curating best practices, right? Like I can, you know, I, I can jump in and watch a Cal Dietz and try to understand the problems he's trying to solve Mm -hmm. and then 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 it suddenly becomes not about methods but i'm like oh this is a principle i should integrate that because it's a better way absolutely so in in the vein of looking to different industries so your work largely originated in the crossfit community but it's carried Mm -hmm. over to many other athletic populations like you know i want to say it was probably 2012 13 we kind of had like this this barrage of of pro baseball guys who came in in the offseason like hey you know this 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 kelly surrett guy is I'm like, yeah, I've heard of him. Um, he's got some really good stuff. And he's like, yeah, I've been doing it. I feel great. So, you know, I'm curious, you know, as you started to see your work transcend, you know, different athletic populations, were there principles that you found applied to all sports and also ones that maybe didn't carry over nearly as well? Well, that's a, a really fine question. So mm-hmm. if we stop and take a, you know, a step back and say, what is it I do, right? Mm-hmm. I am a strength and conditioning coach and I'm a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. And so much of what I try to do is to prepare athletes to go get coached. So one of the things that I'm able to do is I know enough about baseball. I know enough about the positions and mechanics because the shoulder is the shoulder. I mean, you and I, it doesn't matter really what's going on. The shoulder does what the shoulder does across any sport platform. So whether you're talking about the javelin or throwing a baseball, you know, the elbow is going to be in the same position. The torso has to do the same thing. The rear hip has to do the same thing. But the difference is that I was always free from really the talking about the specifics, like you actually, you know, warming up for pitching. So I was able to offload a lot of the minutia of the sports specific, the details, the preparation. And what I was able to do was focus on the language that we all, the common language that we all spoke, strength and conditioning, power clean, deadlift, press, rotate, right, lunge, hip, you know what I mean? So Uh what was nice is that I suddenly had a diagnostic tool, and my hypothesis was that if I restored people's mechanics, gave them access to their positional competency in the movement language they were using, so this is why I can go to MMA and I can go to baseball and football and hockey, 
because they all have a, a common movement language and that movement language is usually strength and conditioning, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I've had good success with is I don't run some parallel corollary movement language to help you diagnose. My movement language is your movement language, which is that based in the gym, which everyone does. So I can be completely agnostic about the way you prepare your baseball players, but I can help them with their body shapes, range of motion mechanics to express those things of training so that then they then can go be prepared to coach. And that is the difference because the number of, you know, calls I get or emails from coaches saying, Hey, I don't know what you did with this athlete, but you know, she is super coachable or he is really could do everything. And they're like, what'd you do? And I was like, well, we front squatted, we pressed, (laughs) right? We worked on hinging, you know, could they breathe under some load? I mean, just such simple stuff, but Mm -hmm. You know, it's so difficult at the higher level to keep an eye on all of those small range of motion details mm-hmm. to get the buy-in. And what I really appreciate is the fundamental law of, of elite sports. Athletes will do what work. They will reject what doesn't work for them. I love that. Now, you, you even commented in the intro about just the importance of being a generalist and talking about these, you know, these understandings of common movement principles you know, that, that allow you to work across multiple distance. What for you are the basics, right? So if, if you're a 23 year old coach, whether you're a physical therapist mm. or, or someone that's, that's more on the, maybe the, the non-clinical side of things in the strand edition community, let's say you want to be able to do that when you're 28, 29, what are the competencies that, that you feel like you, you know, the boxes you need to check to get to that point to be, a, to have a seat at that table? Well, you know, let me just say now, the coaching that you're doing now makes your 10 year old self, your 10 years ago self look like a just rank amateur. True. I'm talking about you personally, right? Oh, it definitely does. Me too. <laughs> and, um, what we're expecting our novice coaches or entry level coaches to do is real. I mean, they are, they are dropped right into a very sophisticated and integrated system. I think fundamentally one of the things that happens is that as we all try to expand our knowledge because Frankly, all the best coaches I know in the world, all platforms are all interested in all aspects of human function, right? And so that they really are starting to be what we call savage generalists. Like they're really interested in the whole thing and how the whole thing interacts, which I think is, you know, this next piece. But one of the things that happens is that you, most of us come out of a system. We come out of a tradition, like these are the movements I do. This is what I learned, this is, you know, and so your, your heritage really influences your you're moving. And, you know, one of the, the things that, you know, as you try to, to figure out what your system is or, or how you do, you end up adding things on to your original system. And in software, this is called occlusion, where you end up having a really inelegant thing. Well, we do this for rotation and we do this for single leg and we do, and all of a sudden you have athletes who are cobbling together and they can't see how the system interacts. You add in some kind of nutrition thing. You can't tell what's happening. You add these environmental loads and all of a sudden you have a really dirty sort of matrix of information, right? You can't see inputs and outputs. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do is, you know, start with the basics of, well, one of the things that you should do is be able to have access to your native range of motion. Mm-hmm. So what is those native range of motion? Because we all memorize how much hip extension you're supposed to have, how much shoulder flexion you're supposed to have, how much, right? And and what we'll see is, of course, our elite athletes will move a certain way or, or be always be struggling to re- retain some kind of range, right? Like 
internal rotation is one of the things that goes around, goes away at the shoulder with all of our throwing athletes. They just, it just gets stiff. So it's something I keep an eye on. Like, do you have internal rotation of the shoulder? Yes or no. And it's something that you won't say, I just fixed this once because you throw a ball at a hundred miles an hour, a hundred times a day. And it's fucking weird. It's a weird thing you do. <laughs> right. So we end up being able to establish in every sport and every athlete certain tendencies. But underneath that, is what is it that the body is supposed to do? Now, what's important about that is that that language has traditionally been 100% divorced from the strength and conditioning world. What we valued was hard work. What we valued was, oh, we'll just squat high today. We'll put another kilo on the bar, right? You got stronger. This must be physiology. Uh And so we've really taken a physiologic base. I generated more watts, I generated more pounds, I got stronger, I put mass on. It doesn't tell me about how you move, your mechanical efficiency, your resistance to range, any of that, right? Uh-huh. Or your movement choices, the movement options you have. And I'll just layer in that if you are working with a pro athlete, what you're actually seeing is mutants who can work around any problem until they can't, right? They really yeah. are. They're different than me. They're different than you. I mean, you probably are a mutant. You can deadlift 600 like on a <laughs> Tuesday, hungover. But... um the rest of us cannot. And so what I want coaches to begin to do is see these fundamental shapes underneath the training that they're doing. Because um, I think one of the most important voices right now in strength and conditioning is Franz Bosch. Yeah. And not even necessarily that if you're doing Franz Bosch-like drills, but understanding part of the game here is coordination and efficiency and motor learning and speed, right? And seeing the root shape of the hip in that movement. So suddenly, like, you're like, I say, hey, show me all of the movements you're doing during the week. I can be like, look, you didn't actually expose the shoulder to any internal rotation loads in this, right? And that might be a high pull or a snatch or a kettlebell swing. It can be really easy to get there. Might be a Cuban curl, right? But at some point in there, I'm like, hey, here's a deficit or of your position. Or I can look and say, hey, I, I don't see that you're actually taking the hip into any meaningful extension-based load. So you're not doing end-range isometrics. You're not, you know, you, what you're doing is elevating the back foot, but you're doing front leg squats. You're not actually loading that back leg. And so suddenly, when you start to look at the root shape, the root sort of range of motion of what we're supposed to do, and you layer that in, you can see and understand what your training is doing in so much that you're not just getting stronger, but you're reinforcing vital patterns and positions. So then, you know, we, we can start to really winnow down about what an athlete needs based on his or her ability to achieve a shape. And that, that becomes a lot easier than to program. And then you, then you're like, well, which tool do I want to use today? Which, yeah. which is the most fun, which gives me the most bang for the buck, which is the least one that's going to allow my athletes. Like, I think like what Kabuki is doing with their open trap bar, mm-hmm. being able to get athletes into lunge split positions and deadlift and pull, that's really, really powerful stuff. Just because, man, I don't know if you notice, but the position we do in sport is extending the hip and running. Yeah, that's, that's no doubt. All right, so what's interesting too is like we, we know that we often have to ins- like sell these things, right? We're talking about the importance of shoulder internal rotation and hip extension, like – Athletes, mm. athletes don't get excited about that like you and I do, right? We're nerds. We think about this stuff oh, yeah. at 3 a.m. Oh, yeah. as we stare off into blackness. So, you know, we often have to sell these things on the mobility front to athletes because they aren't inherently sexy. You've done a great job of making all of these initiatives very engaging for people, dating back to kind of like, you know, your, your initial YouTube sensation videos. Like, 
what, what do you really attribute your success, success in this regard, right? Like everybody tells athletes they need to stretch. Very few people actually get them to be consistent and, and excited about it. Yeah, well, I mean, let me just point at magnificent mobility. Can I just have a second and, and point that out? But um, uh, you're the first person to ever use the word mobility. Um, I will say that one of the things that we have done is made stretching, I'll put in quotation marks, sexy again mm-hmm. for the first time. Mm-hmm. And the reason was we never had goals for why we were doing that. So remember, I also come in from this physical therapy side. So I get to sit at the tables with all the performance staff of premier soccer and premier rugby and all, you know, and I have physical therapists and sports men on one side and I have strength conditioning coaches and position coaches on the other side. And I'm in both sides because I'm a coach, but I'm, I'm trained as a physical therapist. So one of the things that I, I saw was, Hey, we know that pain, for example, is highly complex, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, and, and, and there's definitely been a recent push for helping people sort of demystify pain. Pain yeah. is a request for change, et cetera, et cetera. And poor sleep, poor nutrition, stress for my job. My wife is pregnant. I'm a ho- I'm away from home. Like I might lose my job. All of those things may sensitize a person, right? So mm-hmm. difficult to control that variable. We call that large window, big window stuff, but the little window stuff right, is, well, how do I control what I can control? And what I saw was is that I couldn't always tell why someone was in pain. Sometimes I could. I'm like, look, your arch is collapsed. You know, you're you're generating a huge amount of valgus force because you can't, your ankle doesn't work and you can't turn. And that's maybe why you've irritated this knee, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got away with it until you can't get away with it. But the the heart of this is, well, I can control someone's range of motion, I can can control their tissue quality. And when we started having that conversation about doing what's first, restoring someone's capacity and range of motion was a simple way of, A, improving their mechanics so we could prove their wattage, which our athletes understood intuitively. Well, let me tell you a story. Um, working with Alan Lim, who has, uh, you know, he's invented scratch. He's a uh-huh. Tour de France level super coach. He's worked with Americans and Olympians. And he had me, uh, like 10 years ago, I was working with Levi Leipheimer. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, they're like, we have a problem with this Tour de France cyclist knee that wobbles. And I was like, well, why don't you bring your watt, like bring a portable bike so we can measure his wattage and his output after we change. And they're like, what? Like, that's what you can see. I'm like, that's the only thing I give a crap about. Like, can you get into a better position? allows better access to your physiology. So suddenly when we coupled restoring range of motion, your native range of motion, which means you got to have like a range. You need to say, well, this is complete. We don't need to work on it now versus just push on everything that hurts forever and ever or stretch nebulously with no goal, right? What our athletes couldn't connect was inputs and outputs. So when I restore your position and you PR or you feel better or you feel like you throw more effectively, your elbow doesn't hurt, you get it. Uh-huh. And so always connecting behaviors for your athletes is a crucial aspect of this because if you want to b- get buy-in, what's important to that athlete is their success and their ability to perform and giving them the tools to do it. You don't have to nag anyone. They may not have come out of a tradition that valued that, but that's because we never viewed strength and conditioning as the ultimate diagnostic tool. We waited. Yes, you went to the gym, you worked. We waited until you got broken or you had injury, and by that means you couldn't do your job, right? You couldn't occupy your role on the team. And then we were like, oh, you don't have any hip extension, and by the way, your hip is destroyed, right? You need a, you need a hip replacement versus, hey, I see you moving in the gym today, and, and I saw it as we 
set up to, to do some simple pulls on the trap bar that you were reversing earlier than you normally do or you couldn't get into this position, mm-hmm. let's look at your hip flexion. And suddenly, positional capacity, range of motion is part of the strength coach program. And it turns out that a lot of the tools that we use in physical therapy aren't for physical therapists, they're for strength coaches. Why? The strength coach has more interaction with the athlete more times, more often, and they can conjoin those behaviors of position, restoration, position, restoration. And it almost makes, you know, you're almost to some degree speaking about like shortening the learning loop, right? Where if you can yes. show something direct relates and you can almost make a compelling case that this is one of the reasons why people will often buy in on manual therapy so quickly, right? They get off the table and someone's made them feel better. They retest the activity. So, you know, is, is that a goal for you? Like say, um, you have a pitcher that wants more hip extension is delivery. Is it, Hey, let's do some prone hip extension, find some of that, that terminal hip extension, activate in the range of motion you have, and then get right on the mound and feel it. Do you try to shorten the learning loop with stuff like that as much as possible? 100%. Only because, um, you know, part of the game here is, look, we need to reduce the number of things our athletes are doing. Like, Mm -hmm. part of the problem is that we're like, oh, you're an athlete? No, you're not. You're like a robot, you Mm -hmm. know? You know, you need to eat, drink this shake and eat this turmeric and do these squats and here's your activation, <laughs> here's your regen. And like, at some point, like, I need you to go be a person. I need you to go have fun. Right. So what is the, what, how do we minimize the number of things we're doing? So a person may have specific things that they're always keeping an eye on. Why? Because that's the nature of the sport. Look, my, I have a narrow pelvis. My adductors get stiffer than your adductors. I guarantee mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. But that's just my pattern based on my anthropometry. It doesn't mean that like I'm moving incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Principles remain principles. What we're also trying to do is create a, a model that helps uh, explain what we're seeing. So, you know, the, the physiology of the shoulder is really constant. And you know, what we know is in certain positions, it's more stable. In certain positions, it has more degrees of freedom or it's working around incomplete range of motion, right? If you're missing your end range shoulder flexion, you will internally rotate the shoulder, flare the elbow out. And that's a weak position to throw a, a ball 100 miles an hour. I guarantee you that no one does, right? Mm-hmm. And so let's appreciate that the brain is the most sophisticated structure in the universe. It will always work around a problem. You know, l- let me give you a, a, an example. Barry Zito who's a good friend of ours, and he won't mind me saying this. Um, you know, and he took a year off, and what he said was, Kelly, I want to rebuild my mechanics, so I go back one year and do what I want to do. And he said, ever since I left the Giants, my mechanics were changing, and I had to adapt my pitching to my change in mechanics. And he was doing this crazy stuff with his left shoulder. And, and I was like, look, you don't have any internal rotation in your left shoulder, right? And so your shoulder has to translate forward, which shortens your Look at your rear right arm when you throw like that. And he was like, whoa. And I was like, and you don't have any hip extension. Like you literally don't, can't extend your back leg and internally rotate it to generate power. So how did you manage to throw as well as you did using only three out of your six gears, right? Mm-hmm. So again, we want to be able to explain what we're seeing. So what's beautiful and what's so powerful about being a strength conditioning coach is that you can predict movement patterns, even in complex movement shapes, uh-huh. in the gym because we have this very clear language of understanding what the shoulder's doing and what people's tendencies will be when they're tired, when we're going fast, when we're under metabolic load, when we're under respiratory mode, when we're competing. Dude, I can see it all in the gym. It's, it's perfect, right? And injuries are going to happen on the field, of course. Uh-huh. But we also want to be able to say, hey, can you understand what's seeing and can you predict what's going to happen? And then also, can we communicate that? And now, suddenly, we appreciate that your range of motion is a dynamic 
document, as a dynamic language that if you jump on an airplane after playing a, you know, double header and all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've got back at three in the morning, I check you the next day, you're going to be crap. So let's, let's understand that the nervous system, tissues, all of those things are dynamic. The thing that we can do every day in strength and conditioning is not necessarily get stronger, but re-coordinate, reconnect the body, restore the range of motion, restore the ability to achieve those shapes. You know what I love? Whatever the, whatever the mechanism is. You just like, you also actually just piggyback. So Kevin Euclid, um, you know, recently was a, a guest on here. And we were talking about just the, the modern era of analytics in baseball. Mm. And he actually made a comment that he thinks, you know, a lot of the data that we have is, and he, he's in player development with Chicago Cubs now. So he's, he's living this not just as a player, but as a, as a coach now. And he commented on how a lot of the data he thinks, yes, it helps with player development on the skill aspect of things, but it actually is probably more impactful for the strength conditioning coaches. And what we realize is that, you know, in a discussion like that, you related, you know, movement competencies to mechanical outcomes. And what we realize is you can even take it to the nth degree with the, the modern generation where you can talk about spin rate. You can talk about various yes. positions that, that actually impart a certain force to a baseball, um, certain spin axis, all those things. So, you know, it, it makes it much more helpful for us to have one more avenue we can point to to, to basically sell quality movement, if that makes sense. It, it does. And what's great about the strength and conditioning room for me is it's the only safe place in the organization. This is the place where you're going to fall on your face every single day. Mm-hmm. You can be vulnerable here. We can talk about what's stiff, what hurts. Mm-hmm. It's not going on a report. It allows us to connect things more. Hey, I noticed that my knee was a little sore. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling today? My knee's a little sore. Great. Well, it turns out in my tools, I've got BFR and I've got percussion and I've got Normatec mm-hmm. and you can put a CBD salve on there and you can get a massage. That's all in the wheelhouse of strength and conditioning. So suddenly, you know, that's not an injury. That's not tissue damage. That's just, hey, something sensitive about that. But I know that if you go out there with pain, you're not going to perform the way you can perform. Your brain is going to be like, mm, that right leg is not going to generate as much force. Why? Because it's a little painful. But if we desensitize that and suddenly the person who's coming into the weight room is saying, hey, I come in here and I move better and I feel better, we'll get strong. Did, do we not know how to make strong people? That's and I don't, you know, like, like sometimes I, get, I lose my mind. I'm like, well, you know, are deadlifts really going to make me slow and less powerful? You know, I'm like, well, I, I swing kettlebells and I'm springy and I jump and I'm like, you know, is that really, do I need to, f-? and I, you know, it's so easy. And it's also to the place now where I think we have said, or we're getting there where we can say, you know, I think you're strong enough. Let's work on other things. And that, and that came out of Bonderchuk and the work of track and field with the, you know, like, Hey, you can bench 500. That's probably not the limiting factor to your shot put anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. We need to go throw more and work on technique and mechanics and restore your positions. So let me ask you, how strong do you need to be to play baseball? It's a, it's quite literally the million dollar question. Like we've had this right? discussion over and over again. I can tell you, I, I feel pretty good about an athlete that can come in and, you know, and, and, and look solid at 455 on a trap bar. That's just like in the back of my mind, I feel like every one of our professional athletes should be able to get there. And we have guys that, you know, I'll, I'll use Corey Kluber as the example, right? And, and this was a, Corey threw 249 innings in 2016. He threw game seven of the World Series on November 1st. And we're, we're expecting him to come back and everything's going to hurt. And, you know, we're just going to be putting duct tape and WD-40 on everything all off season. And sure enough, before Christmas, I mean, we're talking six weeks, he's pulling 455 and change. So I think there's something to be said about these guys that have a really strong training foundation. They can get back to it sooner. 
And so it allows you to get to the other stuff easier, you know? You're nailing it. So now you can say, okay, hey, I want to use the deadlift. We've developed enough strength. Getting him to 500 doesn't make him a better pitcher. Mm -hmm. But the robustness of that position, using hinging now and keeping an eye on that minimum. So that's something we can say, hey, look. And for example, let me just use myself. When I deadlift, everything in my life feels better, works better, Mm -hmm. right? So being able to eventually come in to ask the athletes. One of, one of our friends was a strength coach for the Warriors, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the athletes said, hey, look, I know we don't bench a lot, but when I bench, I play great basketball. I feel strong. I feel prepared. I feel connected. And the strength coach was like, let's bench. You want to bench every day? <laughs> yeah. Like I can put 135 on for three sets of three. Like you want to – like we can press every single day. And he was like, you're the best coach ever. And I was like – yeah, because you listen to what your athletes needed. Uh-huh. One, balance with how do we create durable tissues in all of these positions? And then how do we create more movement options? And I'm not saying they need to be gymnasts, but what you see is the more range of motion control, and I'm talking about normative, like just uh-huh. the basics for crying out loud, right? Uh-huh. I mean, someone can have 70 to 80% of their internal rotation and still throw 100 miles an hour, right? I mean, I'm just like, but if they have 50 or 40%, you know, that shoulder is going to translate forward and they're going to lose some power, right? Uh-huh. But the idea here is, you know, how do we create durability? How do we create movement options? Because what's really interesting about, and I really recommend that everyone reads Franz Bosch's new book, it's called The Anatomy of Agility, is it's really sneakily about, um, you know, motor control, motor learning, motor theory. That's really what the first half of the book is. And if you haven't been exposed to that in a really long time, you're going to have your brain cooked. But the idea here is that your brain is actually so sophisticated that if you can't generate force in a position, your brain will shut that down as an option. And it will be a weak position. You won't even have access to that. You won't be able to get there, right? And so what's interesting is that when we just do things like what is what is the human being supposed to do, you're supposed to have this much hip flexion, this much hip extension, this much hip internal rotation. You were one of the first people I saw who was a non-physical therapist. In fact, you were the first person, Eric, who talked about hip internal rotation, right? You were like, I think you called it like hip internal rotation deficit disorder yeah. dysfunction, something like that. I yeah. remember the blog post about it. Mm-hmm. And and I remember thinking to myself, wow, he's he's discovered hip internal rotation. I'm like, this is, <laughs> we're, we're going to move the ball now because if this is not a physical therapy thing. So – you know, one of the things that I want everyone to be clear about is we define injury as clear tissue trauma. We define, like, there's a bone sticking out of your leg. Like, you can tell, right? Uh-huh. You know, you don't have a UCL. Um, clear tissue uh, trauma. You've got night sweats, dizziness, fever, vomiting, nausea, pathology, which happens, right? People get sick. Things happen. Or you can't do your role on the team. It means you, you, I can't dress up. Okay, you're injured. Everything else is not injury. And that is in the realm of positional capacity, restoration, tissue, sleep, and that smells like performance. And what I think is really interesting is that, you know, I got a lot of pushback from the physical therapy world, for example, about connecting sleep to pain and persistent pain and chronic pain and just injury, right? And they were which like, is, which uh, is it's comical that anybody can even have a leg to stand on for that discussion. Oh, you know what I mean? I, com- I completely <laughs> agree. And all of a sudden, all this research is out there, and I'm like, well, you know how I knew that? You know, it looks like I'm like feeling the elephant as a blind man, but I'm like, I know that because in performance, if you sleep like crap, you perform like crap, Uh right? So what's nice is that we, we suddenly are like, well, why do we eat a certain way? That didn't come out of 
injury prevention or t- like that came out of performance. And so if you look suddenly at all of the, the, the best metrics of tissue health and feeling safe and belonging to a tribe and warming up and cooling down and getting pumped with, dude, that's all in the realm of strength and conditioning. So I feel like as long as it's not an injury, it belongs in the weight room. And this is the place where coaches and athletes can really connect and talk about sleep and management and downregulation and Adderall and Ambien and all of the things that athletes are doing to self-soothe or to manage their lives. And that means that why don't we just put range of motion in there? And as soon as the athletes understand why we're doing that and, and that we're just after the minimum dose to make a change so that we'll get the rest of it tomorrow. We have a long season, right? Absolutely. They, they get it. That's good stuff. Now, I, I'm, this is an extension of that because you kind of hinted at some of your detractors. Um, anytime someone's as prolific as you are, um, and you're you're all over the place um, in terms of content creation and, and the way you teach, there are bound to be people that that interpret your work incorrectly, right? So, where do you think your writing slash presenting mm-hmm. has been the most misinterpreted? Uh, you know, here's the deal: is that um, you know, with internet craziness. People get a snapshot and make a lot of a lot of assumptions. And one of the things that I just will promote it to everyone is we never talk negative, we never point negative, we never talk about what we don't like or something position we don't see. This happened to me once where I called out an athlete on her position and it totally blew up in my face it was a mistake. So let me let me preface this. So Daisy Ridley from Star Wars was running and she was walking like a duck and running next to John Boyega, who's sprinting like a savage. And her knee is valgus, and her foot is turned out. And I'm like, that is just wretched running. So I posted on the internet. I was like, haha, because I love Star Wars. And I was like, look, I had such high hopes for the next generation of Jedi, but then Ray Cut tore her ACL and became a statistic, right? And I was like, topical, funny. I'm obsessed with women's ACL tears, how to prevent them, da da da. Anyway, a week later, Juliet gets an email. She's like, Daisy Ridley. Do I know Daisy Ridley? Why does that have such a familiar name? And I'm like, oh, fuck. Did Daisy Ridley <laughs> email you? And Daisy was so hurt that I – she's like, look, I was doing everything I could. I was working on my mechanics. I was doing what everyone said. I, you know, I came out unharmed. And I was like – and my wife was like, you're right. My husband is a total a-hole. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I emailed her back and I was like, yes, but also – this is you under stress. I mean, there are explosions. She literally said, I was running away from stormtroopers. Like that was in her email. Like I was doing the best I can. Like, you know, things were blowing up and I was running away from stormtroopers. So, you know, the idea here is, look, we don't know what's going on in the athlete's life. And until you really can see what's happening with a coach, you can't, shouldn't make judgments about what's going on. It's really easy to to poke at someone to make yourself or hide your deficiencies. So what I take from that is one is I use Instagram and YouTube and I put up six pieces of content a week explaining what I mean. Uh So the problem is anytime someone has had a difference of opinion with me, as soon as we're in the same room, they're like, Oh, I, you, we don't disagree at all. And I'm like, yeah. I know because the shoulder is the shoulder and the hip is the hip. And I'm totally just being reasonable. About and, and, and you're a good human being. Like, I think that's, you know, when people are behind the computer or the, or the phone, oh, yeah. they don't understand that, you know, it's, it's much easier to dislike than it is to disagree. Fair enough. You know, and recently we put up a podcast with Stan Efferding, who has yeah. just done a great job of solving nutritional problems for very complex guys. Like strength, he did, you know, could you do the food programming for half Thor, the mountain, the world's strongest man, and Brian Shaw? No, I couldn't. I have no idea where to start. How do I manage digestion? You know, 
know, mm-hmm. does he need to wear a diaper, right? All those, <laughs> you know, and some guy got on the internet and like, and I was like, oh, he has 20, 237 followers and he just took Stan apart. And I was like, hey, it's really difficult for you to take Stan apart given that you, you aren't transparent about who you are and what you're dealing, how you're cooking. Right. You're not transparent about looking at his outcomes, which is a really crucial piece of this. And I get it. Look, outcomes are complicated. Da, da, da. But one of the things that I want people to appreciate is that we are as transparent as we can be. And so I show you how I work. I show you how I think. And if you're not willing to come meet me on that transparency. So physical therapists are a good example. They'll be out on the Internet and I'm like, well, who do you work with? And they're like, well, I, I have a a garage next to my house and people come over and I'm like, Oh, okay. So that, that's not quite the same thing. You're not standing in there trying to reform an organization or work at a level, or you don't have 30 athletes in front of you, right? Mm -hmm. Like I got 40 kids coming in. Like what, what's essential? How do we develop this? And what I'll tell you is that all of the masters who drive my thinking, who are so impressed, 100% 100% completely transparent. You see this, you see the soup to nuts. You understand all the things that are going on. And they're like, if you can do it better, come and see it. There's no secret squirrels program. You can show up at any Cressy Institute and shut up and watch. Am I wrong? No, it's wide open. <laughs> it's- so I, mean, I, I think that's, that's part of the thing. I think, um, I, you know, because I, this was 15 years ago or 10 years ago, I wasn't as clear in my explanation of my thinking as I could have been, which is okay. Uh, you know, I, I, if you want to be in this business, you know, have a thick skin. If you want to be on the internet, you know, let all, I mean, look, I have a hair trigger on block. If you, if you're, if you are not an adult and want to sit at the table and actually have a discussion block, I, like you just don't get to, you don't get to play in my sandbox. And I, I actually like to mute them better than block them because then, oh. I, then I know that they're still wasting their time. So I win. <laughs> oh, that's, so it's good to know. I, I will mute instead of block. They'll chirp at you and you'll just never see it. It's incredible. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> and the idea here for me is I'm like, look, if you, if you, if you know, cause if you, someone's like, Hey, I don't understand. Or, Hey, could you elaborate? Or that, that's different than then I'm like, let's have a conversation. So on the one hand, you know, I will also say that I take all of the feedback and I'm like, ah, it wasn't clear. So I have gotten more clear and more reasonable as we've gone and further on, and some of that is just the experience, you know, like it takes, you know, I've been, I've been making videos on the internet about my thinking for 10 years. I started 2010, September, this coming up on the 10th year anniversary of the first video that where I fill my, fill my crotch for 10 minutes squatting. <laughs> All right. So uh, you, you even talked about the, use the word essential in your answer. And um, so I've been thinking a lot about what's essential lately. So Dan Heath, um, Tripp and Dan Heath are awesome authors. I've read a bunch of their stuff. Um, you know, it's uh, Stanford and Duke psychologists. And yes. Dan, Dan wrote a book solo. It's called uh, Upstream. It's a great one that just came out. And he talked about things that uh, in, in the world that have trickle down benefits. So, you know, one of the examples he cites is that you know, proactive spending in some countries related to exercise and health initiatives, nutrition stuff can prevent reactive healthcare expenditures. It makes perfect sense, right? If, if people don't get obese in the first place, then we don't have to spend as much money treating obesity later. Um, and it's got me thinking about more places where we can find big rocks upstream, you know, mm. for our athletes to really facilitate those benefits down the road. So what are some of the things that you see athletes overlooking you know, in this regard, is it sleep? Is it recovery strategies? Is it proper warm up? What, what do you think the, the big rocks are for having those downstream impacts? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, the first one is we have a huge culture of insecurity and that's like our athletes 
uh, play a lot of fear-based and do a lot of fear-based movement. And until they can, they're safe or until they have a big contract, oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of insecurity. I will say that in that hustle, you know, going back to Barry Zito, I was like, Barry, you know, tell me about playing for the A's and tell about playing for the Giants. And he said, I didn't become a man until I played for the Giants because that was when it was all on me, right? Before I was a boy and we're having this season, we're flying drones and the, you know, or airplanes in the stadium. But that's when I woke up and realized I had to become a professional. I couldn't just skate on being, you know, natural talented. So, you know, one of the things that we, we have to look at is these, these building blocks of do you eat foods? Do you move your body? You know, do you like to have fun and are stoked? Uh-huh. Like, you know, because the gym is the fun place where you see people, you interact, you feel better, you work hard. You know, the, the principle, like I, for example, I have real mixed feelings about tracking sleep in my athletes because I want them to be humans, right? I'm never yeah. going to penalize someone for being a human. And if you want a really good example of this, read the biography of Anson Dorrance from UNC. Right. That it's called the man watching. Anson Dorrance is the women's, uh, head coach for UNC, played another national championship again, lost to Stanford this year, invented women's soccer in America, but he really does a, he runs brutal hard practices that have start stops and lets his athletes have a life again. I mean, you have to be prepared, but if a girl shows up, you know, hung over, he doesn't, he doesn't trash her. She just got to do the run the one twenties and suffer. You know what I mean? Like it's, she, so he instills this notion early on that you're a pro and it's up to you, but he also does a good job. And UNC has some incredible sports performance staff. So not, not saying that, you know, they're, they're Yahoo about this, but the idea is that he also appreciates that his athletes need to be humans and go, go out to parties and beat regular. So, I think one of the things that we want to do then is say simultaneously, hey, look, I need you like seven hours of sleep is survival. Eight hours of sleep is baseline. I want you to get nine hours of sleep because you are under amazing stress and we're playing for the next 10 years and there's a lot of money at stake. But in order to get eight to nine hours of sleep, you may need to be in bed an hour earlier. And so I don't believe anyone until they show me their sleep. And they don't have to share that sleep with anyone. I don't think the organization needs to know. I mean, I think, I think it really gets into the slippery thing about do we own someone's 24 hour duty cycle or do they need to show up and be pro? But when we make it about the athlete saying, Hey, I want you to be durable. I want you to be, you know, explosive and springy and reactive. And I want you to be able to do this more than just one day in a row. Cause you in baseball and I and every other sport besides baseball also know that our athletes can do cocaine. Go partying and show up and still be the best athlete in the world. I mean, they're extraordinary, but they can't do that forever, right? So, you know, I need our our athletes to appreciate and then begin to set up behaviors that don't feel like that's a big ask. Like they're just like, I sleep on an eye mask. You know, I have a chili pad. I go to bed at this time. I try to manage what I can manage. You know, I'm eating whole foods. Um, Arsenal started having food delivered to their athletes in the evening. And the pushback from management was, these are teenage millionaires. Why are we sending them dinner? And the answer from the performance staff was, well, if you want your athletes to eat vegetables and meat and some quality carbohydrate, you should give it to them and reduce the number of steps and variables because those kids are going to go smash 
French fries and pizza and McDonald's or whatever they want to smash, right? You're not going to so, change the person. You change the situation. That's is, right. Yeah. And that's called behavior constraint. Mm-hmm. So how do we constrain certain behaviors and set up so that our athletes get buy-in and experience themselves? That means we need to see inputs and outputs. Hey, I see that your HRV readiness was ready. Or, you know, we I like to get kids that whoop a lot. I think whoop is a really easy way for people to understand certain behaviors, certain, you know. And they start to see the connections. I think Whoop has done a good job of showing that if you show athletes what happens to their heart function when they drink, they drink less, right? You know, when they, they sleep quality is less. And suddenly what we, you know, again, fundamentally, we're always going to have this tug of war because we treat athletes like chattel. I start with the assumption that it's the athlete and I against the system. It's, no one is nefarious. No one's trying to break people's arms and get them washed out, right? But you're a professional and you need to show up and do your job because you're getting paid a lot and there's a lot of money at stake. That's the game, right? I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's really important to America. It's important to society. But the system is set up that as soon as you break, I got 10 more kids to take your place. So, Whenever we start to shift the paradigm around, we do these behaviors because they're going to give you the best access to your mutant physiology the longest, we always get buy-in, and then it's not such a big deal. So it's really basics, 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 basics. But we also measure the basics, and I don't ever take it for granted. I'm like, hey, I need you to take pictures of your food for the next four days. I just need to take a picture of it and send it to me, right? It's just so that I can actually see what we're talking about because the problem is – we make a whole lot of assumptions about the background system mm-hmm. that are 100% wrong. No doubt. So that's that's the upstream. So let's talk about the downstream. So, um, you know, I know you've been a big fan of Mark Pro. You were kind of the first person to really put, I guess, Gary on the on the, the national stage with respect to, uh, you know, fighting the good fight against icing acute injuries. And, and Gary's actually our most downloaded podcast ever. So um, no. I, I, we've taken a liking to it as well, particularly because of our interactions with Kluber and his benefits with it. So let's talk about how you use Mark Pro, but also how you see it fitting into the bigger picture of recovery. Are there are there certain things that you look at globally um, with recovery and then where does it fit in under that umbrella? What's interesting is that it's so easy to get in the weeds about fiber type and mm-hmm. adaptation response and nutrition, and, you know, and what we fail to f- appreciate sometimes is like, look, you're a flu, a bag of fluid. One of my friends describes this as an aquarium. Like, yeah. and if you look at all of the good models, like the, the body is, especially in the trunk, you know, it's a radial contractile field that really compresses fluid, air, lot, limbs, liquid, burnt. Mm-hmm. And that means that we need to be looking at fascia, we need to be looking at lymphatics. Yep. You know, one of the things that, you know, got lost in the language of this thing is just moving fluids and waste and congestion in your body. Yep. So one of the things that, you know, working with Gary made perfect sense was, look, if you have a rotator cuff that's congested, right? And the, and in Chinese language, the Chinese medicine, it would be stagnation, right? Mm-hmm. AKA, I call it an adaptation error. Well, you just had a car accident for, you know, nine innings. And then you just sat there and, you know, like, what did you think was going to happen? Did you flex one of the muscles in your shoulder for the last next 12 hours? Well, you ate dinner, you drink some wine, but you didn't actually use your shoulder, right? So, you know, how is it possible to actually move the, get the garbage out and bring the groceries in if you're not doing that? Or I can say, hey, get, I want you to ride this assault bike for an hour at, you know, 10 RPMs. And your athletes are like, 
not going to do that. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and not, a lot of times it's not feasible, right? Like, let's not, talk, uh, right. You, you go into our seven innings and you got to hop on the team flight right afterwards and fly overnight to get home. Nailed it. Nailed it. The environment precludes best practice, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I did, like, for example, Matt Hasselback working with Andy Luck, and they're in the playoffs, and I'm like, Matt's like, hey, you know, give us, give us thing. I'm like, I want you to go for a walk in the evening before you go to bed. <laughs> and I want you to get up first thing in the morning and I want you to walk for 30 minutes before you go get on the bus to practice. And they're like, holy shit, this morning walk just changed my life. And I was like, <laughs> right. And that's just because all we did was circulate stuff, right? Yeah. We just decongested that lymphatic system and managing the adaptation response to training is part of the game. And what's nice about a technology like Mark Pro is that it allows our athletes to be passive and yet still tap into the very basic physiology that is us as humans, which is muscle contraction, dries lymphatic drainage, gets blood flow in, right? The whole thing for me is based on movement. And believe it or not, sometimes, so Nick Gill, strength coach for the All Blacks, one of my besties, is such a good guy. You know, he also is a triathlete, so he's a user. So one of the things that I really appreciate about strength coaches who engage in practice and are vulnerable in front of their athletes and train, you don't have to be the strongest athlete. You just need to train. Like you're, you're, you've got all the mutants in the world. Like don't be the best. You don't need to be the best, right? Mm-hmm. But I, but your athletes see you deadlift, you know, Cressy, and they're like, oh, well, he actually knows what he's talking about. Like, you know, he's, he's got to, you know, not round his back when he does that. He does what we say. So Nick Gill is this incredible at- coach and athlete, you know, and, uh, I forget where I'm going with Nick Gill, but, you know, this notion that, um, you know, being a user, I think, really helps your athletes understand what's going on. Nick would sometimes, you know, realize that he couldn't train after a match because he'd walk 25,000 steps. (laughs) How did he know? Because he was getting everyone ready and prepped and on the sideline, 25,000 steps is like 20K of walking. So, you know, until we really understand the loads, what we're talking about, it's hard to see inputs and outputs. When I work with elite military groups, they have a lot of sleep-related problems, just like our pro athletes do, right? After a big match, can't fall asleep. What do I do? I reach for THC. I reach for alcohol. I reach for Ambien. And we're agnostic about that stuff. We're like, oh, those are just self-soothing techniques. You are afraid you can't go to sleep before the next day, so you're going to hit the brakes in the tools that you have available to you. So unless we, one, understand those tools, and two, give the athlete a different selection or a different choice, then they'll keep solving the problem for themselves. And that's why it's crucial that we understand really what's going on in the athlete's world. That's really, really good stuff. So as, as an industry, this is, and this is a total change of pace, but as an industry, we talk a lot about improving range of motion, right? In the baseball world, though, we see athletes who have some success in part because they have such crazy range of motion already, right? We got these loosey goosey guys who can contort themselves into uh, elaborate positions to deliver Perfect. a baseball. We, we, and, we don't, we don't need to work on that. That's yeah. Fine. So we can take our eye off that, right? Exactly. So, so what are some strategies then that you, you work on in these guys with hypermobility? Do you have specific, uh, competencies that you like to see with them or is it just sure. st- stay away and then let's get strong? For sure. Well, you know, what's great is, um, don't let anyone fool you. It doesn't matter if you're listening to my stuff, you're watching FRC, you're doing strength conditioning, you're doing physical therapy. There are only two things you can do as a strength coach to, to manage a problem or a movement-related problem. You can slow down or you can stop. That's it. 
I mean, everything else is some variation of slowing down or stopping. That's tempo or isometrics. That's the language of strength and conditioning. Uh-huh. So if I start to, and this is what's really crucial about this whole conversation about prediction is being able to understand and predict what the movement compensation is. And we already have that language. So if a guy is benching and his elbow flares, that's compensation. And that may be, that's just, him or her solving a problem, getting the weight up, because that's what you said you valued, right? They're going to get it up no matter what. And the question then is, can you identify the compensation of the movement? And A, identify that it's either the athlete doesn't have any shoulder extension or the athlete doesn't have any internal rotation of the shoulder so that this is what they do to solve that problem. Or is it that they just don't know how to move? So I'm working with an Olympic rower right now. She's a multi-Olympic rower trying to go one more. Bless her little heart because now she's got a whole nother year of training. You know, I, mm-hmm. my heart's out to all the athletes who are going to retire after this Olympics. We're going to put one more year. <laughs> and, you know, she's under recovery. Her knees are just doing squirrely stuff in the boat right now, like super squirrely. From the side, back, compression, breathing, like she's just a mechanic, but her knees are wobbly. And I think the last time I saw her, her range of motion was fantastic, Right. So what is the problem here? She doesn't have the motor control because, and when I say that, I mean movement control, to be able to manage that recovery as the boat runs underneath her for the next next stroke. So my first program was, hey, check your hip capsule. Just make sure, just a little hip capsule check. Check in with yourself. But then I said, I want you to do tempo front squats with the bar every day slow, five seconds down. You can go up as fast as you want as long as your knee doesn't wobble. And then I need you to do really slow, heavy step-ups where you're just moving slow and just giving your brain a chance to reconnect the dots. And that is what we would do with a hypermobile athlete. We would slow them down or we would ask them to stop at those moments of compensation and let speed be the piece that lets them like when their mechanics are good, they'll go fast, right? I don't. So this is one of those things where I'm like, you know, Really, you, did you think some slow isometrics or slow eccentrics uh-huh. with a positional hold at the end, that made your athlete less explosive? I'm like, have you seen this person? They're going to be explosive no matter what. But giving them focusing back on coordination and intramuscular coordination and control and being able to own those vulnerable positions, that's the game. And what you realize, it doesn't take very much. Let me give you an example. I've got an all-American swimmer going to – to national championships, right? She's a college, the swimmer of the year at her college, et cetera, et cetera. Hypermobile, super hot, floppy mess. Ultimately got out of college, needed to have uh, shoulder surgery because she was such a sloppy mess. We did static holds on the rings with the thumbs turned forward and breathing, just making her, you know, do push up plus on the rings. And I did Turkish get ups with her so slowly where she could control that range go from position to position. She's like, oh, my shoulder stopped hurting. And I was like, all we did was give her some input. Her body knew what it needed to do. And that's really the key here. One of my favorite clients of all time. Uh, this is She probably came on with us in 2010 or 2011. Uh, significant case of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So severe, oh, yeah. severe clinical hypermobility. She would pop her hip out of the socket getting out of the car. She had to be careful oh, putting on backpack. Shoulder would dislocate. Her first day training with us, no joke. We did farmer's walks with a two and a half pound plate on one side. And to her credit, she stuck with it. She's snowboarding pain free. She's rack pulling 135. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. But it just goes to show you if, if you, 
it's not just giving them strength. It's about teaching them awareness of how to share stress over multiple joints. Instead of selling right. out for the dream at one, you get it a little bit at each of them. Yeah, and that's I think that's crucial to appreciate that you know sometimes the body is looking for just input, and the yeah. input can be serious. Like it, it, you know, farmers carries, you know, I'm like, good lord, dragging a sled with one arm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so we have so many tools. The key for us is then to identify, hey, what are the keys for this athlete? Because universally, look, I think everyone should squat a little bit. Everyone should press a little bit. Like there are some things. Why? Because those are fundamental positions of the shoulder. How you want to hip hinge, up to you, loaded, right? How you want to put your arm over your head, up to you. You want to do it from pull-ups. You want to press. You want to landmine. You you know, you want to give – it doesn't matter. But ultimately, are you exposing that athlete to normative ranges so that they have control at start position, finish position? And that makes it super easy. So in our model, what we've done is basically we speak in the language of archetypes, which are sort of like movement vital signs, which are just – key ranges of motion that are come right out of the physical therapy textbooks, but that happen to map perfectly in every movement we do in the gym, every single one, right? I can explain all. So when someone has a problem or a pain or a loss of position, the first thing we have our coaches do is check, do they have competency in start position and do they have the competency in the finish position? So if, you know, that's just making sure that, you know, your steering wheel turns all the way to the left, turns all the way to the right. Right. Just just making sure that you have access to all the gears that your brakes work. That's all we're doing. And what we do is when we restore those positions or improve one of those positions for the day, then we improve their function. And that makes it really easy to start to pull this out, because the first thing you do if you're like, hey, I'm pressing overhead and I have shoulder, my shoulder hurts. I'm not going to say don't press overhead. I'm going to be like, show me again, but slower. Right. And I'm going to make sure that you actually own the whole range and the whole condition. And these movements that we do this when we slow down, we call these category one movements. And it turns out the category one movement basically has a really start position, a real finish position, and we can go any speed we want through that, right? Well connected. We're not changing shape, change direction. We're not jerking, for example. We're not push pressing, adding speed load, right? All of the sudden, you see that those category one movements are the foundational movements in any strength conditioning program. Back squat. Deadlift, press, bench, row, right? You get it. Easy to see. Absolutely. So a uh, little uh, George Carlin-esque uh, zero transitional material. Tell me something you've changed your mind on. What was something you were wrong about? I know I've got, had a million things I've had, so I'm sure you're, you're in the same boat. Oh, uh, man, i tell you what. You know, I haven't – the if you go back into the first edition of Supple Leopard, how I described the squat, I did – I, I – didn't hammer on the feet enough to say how much was enough, right? Just mm-hmm. more knees out is, is the wrong cue. We're using knees out to get someone's foot position. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't wrong. I, I didn't explain it. Or I got better explaining it. Where I think I, um, you know, really looking at fluid compartment stuff mm-hmm. with salts, with hydration appropriately, I got more sophisticated about that. I became a lot more sophisticated about working with women. And understanding their menstrual period cycle is crucial for a coach to understand. If you're working with a woman and you don't know when she gets a period, you are not her coach. Let me just say that again. If she doesn't communicate that to you in some way, Fitter Woman app, F-I-T-R Woman app is a way that she can communicate, track. That means that I can program 
big loads on certain days, something to high hormone phase, my athletes are not going to perform well. That means I understand their physiology very, very differently, right? Mm -hmm. And the choices I make. And then finally, I would say I really didn't clearly understand the potential of changing someone's CO2 tolerance. Mm -hmm. I didn't, through breathing, I didn't uh, truly appreciate the potential. Look, I had breathing in the first notes I ever did, like 2008. But the amount of work and understanding and capacity and change we can make when we really look at an athlete's ventilation mechanics, holy crap. Like that was just like I was tripping on bars of gold picking up nickels. That's what I felt like. That's really good stuff. No, that a good lesson to me. I know you're a girl dad and I've got three daughters myself. So, so we, I need an app to stay on top of that if they're going to start training at the facility. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and uh, what's really interesting is it's an easy way for them to communicate with their parents yeah. and communicate. But one of the things that we do is we normalize that discussion all the time. And it's not, I don't want my, any of my athletes to be ashamed of their period. It's just, it's part of the game. And being able to communicate that is, is the culture starting at the top. So, I mean, if you, if you only coach men, good on you. You know, it turns out 50% of the people on the planet are not men. And, uh, and understanding that, I'll tell you, it's, it's really, really powerful physiology where we're like, oh, why wasn't my athlete snappy and good today? Well, you know, where is she? And and for her to be able to control that herself, maybe she needs to upper branch chain aminos. There's some things that she can do, like or you know. And then also the other thing that I have really started to get interested in, probably because I'm 47 years old now and still like to go hard in the paint, is what does training look like and how is it different for people who are no longer 23 and made of rubber, yeah. right? Absolutely. That's a great point. That's also interesting. And I'm continuing to say, hey, look, all of the things that you're doing in professional sports is really interesting, but it's also not just entertainment. Like I really wanted to shift this where everyone starts to look at sports and high performance environments, not as circus, because if it is just circus, let's just call it circus and then we'll, we'll, we'll burn the the ask the bodies of our gladiators at the end and just be like whatever you know you mm-hmm. got paid shut up you, everything's broken and you're depressed and suicide mm-hmm. rates but it, it was worth it for us comma or we say hey, this is the greatest human laboratory we've ever come across and you know eo wilson says it best like the evolution biologist says that look the highest calling of the science is to improve the humanities. Well, I think we can transform society, solve musculoskeletal pain, have better families, help people solve osteoporosis, be a hundred years old and totally get up off the ground through strength and conditioning, through high performance. I, this is the lab where everything I know about working with normal, mortal people comes out of working with mutants. And as you're saying that, I'm, I'm actually like in my brain wrestling with, is baseball the single best population to study? Think about it. Our, our freaks are the least freaky of any professional sport, right? Very, we have guys that are successful in many cases because of traits, characteristics, right? Yes. Hypermobility, great sports vision, long middle fingers, like whatever it is, like these are the <laughs> things that make, and, and a lot of times they're, they're average Joes aside from that. Uh, athletically, they don't just have this natural elasticity that they can magically fall back on. They didn't no, jump, right, jump right. out of the gym the, before they ever hit the weight room. Their their ability to chunk information. You know, yeah. I read uh, I reread uh, the sports scene every once in a while. Yeah. You know, and I'm just like, okay, like what we have is geniuses playing a really crazy game. You know, mm-hmm. and I think I think you're absolutely right. Is baseball the right place? But what's interesting is again, if we we look at big picture, not what's happening in the knee. Baseball is one of the more complicated sports because of the travel demand, because guys are asked to do these things sort of cold, Mm -hmm. right? No one 
You know what I mean? Like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I went into the bullpen and I threw, I threw 20 times and now I'm going to go. Like, that's not warming up. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's like the no one other sport really does it this way. Yeah. And, and then to be able to manage, you know, I, I, um, I was training. I used to paddle on the U.S. canoe and kayak team. And one year before I was made it, I was up in Seattle training and I worked an espresso cart and I opened the espresso cart at five in the morning. And, um, there was a former reliever from the Mariners there who had been like, they'd retired his Jersey and he was like, he always makes all Mariners. And he was, he was just coming in and I would, I didn't know anything about baseball at the time, but he loved to chat me up because I asked him everything that was unbaseball related. I was like, so you have a fight with your wife. How did you separate that? So you could go out and pitch in front of the Mariners, right in front of the crowd of Seattle, which are insane, you know, and that's really interesting. Right. Uh-huh. How, how did he stay durable? What were the keys? Like what, what is the things that he did, you know, around that to manage his sleep and to sleep in a different place? You know, in the Tour de France, not only does every cyclist sleep on their own mattress in bed, like Team Sky does, right? Uh-huh. So they have a whole truck with mattresses and sheets for every rider. So the riders are exposed to the same allergens, the same mattress, the same thing they put, they, they go in, they put plastic. So they're, they're just really trying to manage immune compromised athletes who are doing this stuff. But every athlete has their own washing machine because they just are like, look, we found out that if we could control sleep and control this, we could have healthier athletes through the Tour de France. Well, I'm like, hmm. So if I travel and I take my own pillow or I take my own pillowcase, maybe there's something there, right? You know what I mean? Like that's that becomes very interesting to me, all of the, the problems of human performance because – Fundamentally, humans are anti-fragile, we're highly resilient, we're capable of heroic deeds, but I'm also interested in that you come out of this unharmed, if you can. I love that. So, uh, kind of backtracking a little bit to the conversations about daughters. So, I know you're deeply passionate about uh, physical activity of kids and long-term athletic development. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago, I came on a podcast with you and, and Juliet, and we, we talked about it in quite a bit of length. So, I'm, I'm actually going to flip the, the script on you and ask you the same question. Do you think that things have improved since then? Is the big picture getting better? Because that's that's big in baseball right now. Obviously, you know, arm injuries have, have skyrocketed over the years, and it's something we need to get out ahead of. Well, you know, I think what's interesting right now, um, Sue Falzoni said this best. She said, hey, we're going to see the first generation of, of single-sport athletes coming to pros now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. First generation that's ever happened. And, and not every athlete, but we're seeing that now, and we're going to see how durable they are, right? Mm-hmm. We really are, excuse me, going to find out how durable they are. And you know what's interesting is that i'm starting to see coaches realize that they can they can do better if they don't just do the model of i have 4 years to crush these kids but we look at positions we look at mechanics so both of my daughters play water polo and um georgia's water polo coach is uh was coach of the year uh for water polo right mm-hmm. and he is his workouts and the exposure and the goofiness plays Taylor Swift, the way he talks to the girls, watching the cleverness and the breath control, how it's not just, hey, let's swim another thousand. Let's swim another thousand. Like the girls are in, you know, hey, I need you to butterfly, but you got to do a different kick style. Like he just challenges them in such interesting ways that exposes them and makes them really, really durable. And then they asked me, they're like, hey, they've got all gone through our coaching certification so they can begin to understand that, hey, that coach is the coach who's going to help talk to this athlete about pain. So what tools does this coach have to manage that, right? How how can they expand? So the, the real question is, 
you know, where are we starting? Because our kids are more sedentary than ever. And here's something you can do at home. So we, again, when I work in these elite military groups, when we have sleep-related problems, one of the first things we do is we say, hey, you need to walk 12,000 steps a day. So we start tracking steps on those guys, uh-huh. right? How elite is that? Oh, good. Now track steps. And uh, <laughs> and it turns out that that non-exercise activity is one of those aspects of the physiology that's really upstream. So non-exercise activity does what? Decongest. I mean, tons of right? things. I mean, glucose tolerance, a million things, right? Okay, right. <laughs> Plus, you actually accumulate enough fatigue to fall asleep. And you don't get that fatigue through training. Yeah. So it's one of the ways that we tend to see that athletes fall asleep faster. But our kids are not walking enough. So every kid has their phone on them 24 hours a day. That's one of the nice things now. And I'm like, okay. I go into high schools. And I'm like, show me your phones. Everyone opens up their phone. I'm like, go to your steps. It's counting in the background. I'm like, how? It's, I'm like, it's 4 o'clock. How many steps have you had today? 2,000 steps, <laughs> 1,500 steps, 3,000 steps. And I'm like, oh, so you're not even doing what I recommend for my grandma's. Right. Uh-huh. And some of it, again, is that the environment is set up so that they have to now think I've got to walk more. But what we're seeing is kids aren't exposed and durable. They're not playing. They're not goofing off. They don't lift weights. And and I have two daughters. So it's really difficult for me to go, hey, we're going to do assault bike sprints and kettlebell swings today. Oh, no doubt. They would much rather be with a girlfriend doing a spin class, swimming in a team club, right? They just don't have the meathead mentality that I have. Yeah. Where I was my sophomore year, I was lifting weights in the, before school and I was lifting weights after school, right? Because yeah. I was small and slow. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think here the fundamentals are our kids eating whole foods, do they sleep? The, one of the best things that's happened to us in COVID is that my kids are sleeping 9, 10, 11 hours a night. Like that, was, that, was, that didn't happen before because of the demands of school and, and training, and that's incredible. But what we're seeing is that we're inheriting children at the high school level who aren't very durable, who don't have a history of movement language. You know, one of the things I think that I would love every elementary school teacher on the planet who's listening, which of clearly you're very big in elementary school teachers <laughs> is, um, you know, the thing I want you to do with your kids, they need to, they need to run or walk a mile a day, no matter what, uh-huh. like we call it the daily mile. You uh-huh. need to run or walk a mile a day. And it's just so you have strong feet and you circulate or whatever. Barefoot is better mile a day. Also get those kids doing yoga and uh-huh. breathing. I mean, just loading their joints in these isometric positions. Uh-huh. Right. And I love it. I think, I think, we struggle with simultaneously not being crazy about food for our daughters, uh-huh. right? Having them move their bodies. But we say to them, you have to move your body every day. Georgia, thank God. We went to Thailand before this all thing happened at Christmas uh-huh. and the New Year. And Georgia came home and she was like, I think I want to study Muay Thai. And I was <laughs> like, perfect. So I found her a local coach who's savage. She, she fights Muay Thai three times a week. And I'm like, I get all the bouncing. I get all the thing. So it's one more thing that I don't have to coordinate or program because she's engaged in a program. She laughs. And I'm like, look, I don't have to worry about her hip range of motion on those high kicks. You know what I mean? So the more play you can disguise this as, and I want parents to understand six days a week. Six days a week. And I'm not talking about they need to be, you know, the craziness that you and I have talked about before. Yeah. But every day your kid needs to load. If they have one day off, that's fine. But they have to move their bodies every day. 
And I think the other thing too is it's it's another one of like you're not gonna have to change the person. Kids are inherently drawn to movement. Give them fun, oh, yeah. give them fun things to do. Like we, right. we play frisbee, we go for walks, and like on the walks, it's hey, uh, do hops to that mailbox. You know, like it's silly little things like that. But before you know it, you've logged three thousand steps, and they've had a blast doing it. And they've done ten thousand hops. I am the worst kids coach because I am not interested in creating <laughs> yeah. games for children. Yeah, you know, like teenagers, like you're so boring. I'm like, I don't care. Get on the press again. You know what yeah. I mean? I just that's yeah. not my jam, right? But yeah. some people love to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think um, again, if we take that big picture idea, that upstream thing, what we're seeing a lot of times in high school and the injury rates that we're seeing. Look, do you know Nick Denubili? He is um superstar orthopedic surgeon, American Academy orthopedic surgeon. It's like he's he's a stud. He specialized in, did a lot of ACL injuries in kids and talking about all the, the things that happen and doing all the data of like, if you tore your ACL, you're more likely to get your knee replaced because of the swelling that happened and right, et cetera, et cetera. And he used to start every single one of his ACLs by hand with his hand screw. He would just start it and then he'd pull out the drill and then to break the cortical bone. Sometimes he'd break drill bits and he'd just sweat it out and grind in with his drill. Now he does his ACL repairs and he does the whole turn of the hole for the new ACL by hand. It's like coconut. It's like soft coconut. The bones are actually soft and he doesn't need the drill anymore. And that tells me we're doing something wrong and how our kids are loading and being loaded. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you a fun story. I went to grad school at age 22, and it coincided with the time <laughs> at the time when I started powerlifting. Like, I'd lifted, but this was the time when I sold out for the dream, right? What was nice is we had a DEXA scan in our lab, and those were those were not very plentiful back in 2003. No, no. Um, but what was cool about being a grad student is you were used to calibrate the machine. So they'd scan you. They'd hand you a bag of Crisco to hold on your lap, and then they'd rescan it, and they'd see if it picked up the exact difference. So you would basically get free DEXA scans, you know, a couple times a semester. And then there were times we sent our whole men's basketball team in to scan them and stuff. So I actually got a, a DEXA scan when I started lift, powerlifting, and then 11 months later as a comparison. I gained a, a third of a pound of bone, <laughs> body-wide, in just being 22 and lifting heavy stuff. And a third of a pound of bone. It's pretty incredible, right? isn't it? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, you know, look, I'm I'm not a very talented, strong person. You know, I've been under some, I would call moderate civilian loads before. You know, I powerlifted at Louis' gym. You know, I pulled 600. Again, okay for a dad, right? Mm-hmm. But I lay down on the deck, and I'm doing that a long time. I lay down on the decks recently, and I'm like three deviations off the chart. And I was like, I was like, how wrong is your DEXA scan if it won't pick up my bone density? And they're like, well, you have freakish bone density. And I was like, no, I don't. I have the bone density of every 46 year old guy who's been lifting weights for 20 years. That's true. You know, I'm like, I'm like, that's, and I think that's really difficult for us to appreciate that the things that we're doing, we're talking about, look, you can not sleep and mm-hmm. smoke a cigarette and eat a little chocolate donut and still be the world's best, but that is not the long game. Yeah. What we have to do is simplify the behaviors. So that our athletes get by and they don't become robots and they don't uh-huh. become shut down and they can't, they can't go eat a burrito or a, you know, a, a hot dog, you know, and you know, they're not that sensitive. I mean, you have set the bar that healthiest, the, the, the highest on this. You're like, you think the cookie is the limiting factor? I don't, <laughs> right? You know, if you hit your macros, eat a cookie, enjoy yourself. You're a professional athlete and you still have a six pack, right? So, mm-hmm. but the rest of it is difficult to appreciate that we are going to be a hundred years old and that these processes take a long time. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a book called Normal Accidents mm-hmm. by Charles Perrow and a normal accident 
is when something happens and it looks like an outlier. It looks like a freak show, like that torn ACL, that non-contact ACL, whatever. Right. I, I just threw one time and I tore my, my UCL. Right. So uh-huh. those are actually not normal, uh, uh, freak actions. They're normal expressions of the system. If you give the system a long enough to express itself. And I think that's our current problem is that it's really difficult to track inputs and outputs. So one of the things that's really remarkable about your system is that some of your athletes playing at the big leagues have been with you for a decade. I mean, that's amazing. So you, really own the good and the bad with those athletes. You own all the injuries, you understand their development, you understand the, and you know, what I ask a lot of coaches sometimes is how many of you coached one person for a decade, over a decade? Uh How do you know? Are you just leveraging their tissue tolerance and human radness and you pass them on? You're like, I'm the best coach ever. All we did was Smith machine curls and never got hurt. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's So the key here is to really appreciate that what we're doing as coaches should always be to improve the ball because that athlete is going to go somewhere else and she needs to be independent. She needs to know how to strike train by herself, understand how to coach herself in these movements, stop when she's lost position, lost skill, how to manage her soft tissue injuries. Like that's not all you. We should be teaching that. So our athletes don't need you and we can have this conversation in a hundred years because that's really the key to this normal accident theory is understanding that inputs and outputs are often hidden from us in the short term and that we need to appreciate that these things interact in really complex ways over the long time. That is really, really good stuff. I, I think that's probably a good, good where to place to end it too, because it's going to encourage once again, people to find that, that broad education, that, that, that range that we need to, to really specialize when the time comes. Um, here's, a, here's a book. Let me yeah. give a book recommendation. Sure. Do it. If, if anyone's listening this far, yeah. because you know, they um, will, they will. <laughs> uh, it's called deep survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. And it's really about, um, it, it's an, it, you should read it once a year. It's, it's, one, it's one of my favorite books. Um, and what you'll see is that it's about all, everyone who makes dumb assumptions or silly mistakes in the wilderness. That's the model, right? And how some people die and some people don't. But really what you'll take out of it, and let me prep you for this, is understanding that you're like, oh, what are the things that I take for granted or what are the things that I should see that isn't, you know, but we've always done it this way. Well, you got away with it for a long time. So it'll give you sort of a meta process vision around looking at the things that you automatically assume you do, you know, like, man, if you don't want your, you know, players to, you know, look, and one of the elite military groups I was in, they put a bunch of pies in the military dining, right? And they have a lot of civilians who work there and, and support staff, but the the group I was with said, hey, you need to get the pies out of here and replace them with berries. Because if there are pies here, everyone's going to eat pie. And if there are berries here, everyone will eat berries. And lo and behold, they changed the entire culture because they did things like ate together. Mm-hmm. They did things like got rid of the pie. You know what I mean? And so when you go in with those visions, suddenly you can make these great decisions. So let me give you an example of the consciousness because this is where I think we can really make powerful change. Anson Dorrance, man watching, read that book. It's, you'll cry in the first 10 pages if you're a coach. And, you know, um, he got rid of his warm up. The girls used to, this women that he coached would always just run like an 800 just in the warm up. It's like 10 minutes. And he's like, this is just crap. They're not prepared, not doing anything. So he got rid of it, right? And his, his athletes didn't settle. They didn't feel connected. They weren't ready and focused for practice. He realized they needed this 10 minutes of just 
goof off, grab ass, jog around the thing where nothing was really being done that set him up for the whole practice. It had nothing to do with physiology, it had everything to do with the psychoemotional health of his athletes. So when you take that sort of view about why you're doing things, Remember when the Warriors, they were going to take away the peanut butter and jelly of the Warriors? Uh-huh. So some, you know, the, the strength coach, their performance was like, that's, that's terrible food. What are we doing? And the Warriors re- re- rebelled, right? Cause they were like, this is our routine. I was like, exactly. <laughs> that seeing that for what it is, we finish, we all have peanut butter and jelly. It's our tradition. Like, boom, that's legit. I love it. Now you've got some, uh, some new stuff on the horizon, right? Can, can you clue us into some of these, uh, these new projects? Well, one of the things that we're trying to do, especially in these times where a lot of us don't, can't see our athletes, can't put our hands on our athletes, it's just a different game right now, right? Uh-huh. Is we have a new app coming out in a couple weeks. Our current app is, I don't want to talk about it. It's not great. <laughs> and, uh, but this new app, one of the things I'm really proud of is that I broke myself to make a movement assessment, a subjective movement assessment that every athlete can do. She can do themselves. It has red, yellow, or green, right, motions. But every one of those motions, you'll see, like, hip and turn rotation. It's on there. So you can say, hey, here's my hip and turn rotation coach. The coach is like, holy crap, they can program to it, adjust to it. So I think it's an easy way for people to understand the moving dynamic nature of their range of motion, but more importantly, can communicate that to the performance staff, communicate that to the coaching staff. We have a simple, easy record. You can take foot. It's, and it's not, it's in the language of strength conditioning and athletes can do it themselves whenever they want, as much as they want, sort of check the, the, you know, check the minimums, which is all I want people to do. And you'll notice that I didn't, we don't until the computer vision really hits hard and we haven't got there quite yet. There's no need for us to say you have 82.1%. We either, you know, this is a range that in my expertise is good enough. This is a range of, hey, you should pay attention. And this is a range of what's going on in your life that you have crap hip flexion, right? Mm-hmm. I love it. That's great stuff. So, so folks can find you. It's The Ready State. It's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and thereadystate.com. Um, all really, really good resources, stuff I, uh, I follow uh, myself and, and adhere to for years. So, um, Kelly, appreciate you taking time and appreciate all the, the great stuff you put out there over the years. I've learned a lot personally. I know a lot of our listeners have as well. Well, I thank you so much. And let me just say that, uh, I can't wait to debrief your brain because, uh, you are one of the few coaches who's gone from strictly independent, do it myself, irregular army to let me see how the system works inside a gigantic billion dollar corporation. <laughs> and what I want people to appreciate is that we, all of us who are independent working with athletes, it's very easy <laughs> to suddenly have to go in and manage media, manage nutrition, manage sports medicine, manage all the players, manage all their special, I, my guy, right? Until you can go in and drop in your system, your system may be incomplete. Well, I'll learn a lot. So I appreciate you, man. Um, <laughs> we'll we do. do this again. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, We'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.